Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 213. I think it's 213. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestricelli. Jay, are you mad at Jay Powell this week? Oh my gosh, Derek. I am livid. No, not really. Actually, he did exactly what he said he was going to do, but nobody really believe, believed him. I think yeah. he had to... He had to do it. Like, you know, like he's, by the way, thanks for having me on, Derek. I always, yes, of course. Semi permanent co host. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like, look, there was a lot of, a lot of talk in the last few weeks after his testimony to Congress and then this, whatever we're going to call that's going on with the banks. I'm not going to put it into a, into an envelope here and lick it and mail it. But I think that this, this commentary, the hawkish commentary, but was it a dovish raise? Like this is all very confusing to to the stock market and the bond market right now. But as we speak, as we're talking today, I know this will come out uh, after this. Uh, you know, we're talking. It's Friday. Um, I saw the two year drop to three and a half this week. Right, so we are down from almost five percent before the whole SVB thing to now down three and a half on the two year. And it's the market now afraid that the Fed is actually going to cause some serious damage in the light of everything. Well, all right. So, by the way, Jay Powell, during the press conference, he seemed like he was a, a bit exaster, um, uh, exhausted, exacerbated. I, I don't know what the term is. But, like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, all right, another question. By the way, these reporters, like, come on. Like some of these reporters are asking the same question just in different ways. He's got to be like, come on. I mean, if I was there, I'd be asking about reverse repos. That's what I want to know about. Uh, I'll link to uh, you, a prior show where I explain that. And, and I know. I know. Well, listen, that was a, a very highly downloaded episode, Jay, I will say. So, but do you remember during the press conference, he actually, he's like, we're not raising, we're not lowering rates this year. Like we've known, he actually was a bit flippant with the reporter. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, I didn't. I was uh, in and out of listening to it, but he told us, "Hey, we got more raises ahead, right?" So I would I wouldn't be surprised. Why would he raise if he planned on uh, cutting? So yeah, they're going to raise. They're still hawkish, and the market did not like it. By the way, Yellen, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary, former head of the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve, she was. It was interesting. She went before Congress, and I think there was a, a congressman from Oklahoma who's like, so you bailed out these banks. If my banks are in trouble and she took 20 minutes to basically go around in circles and that, that caused a problem. And then she said, no, we're not going to necessarily bail out anybody. I guess the other day she said, no, we, yeah, well, there'll be more available. So I don't know, Jay, but I will say that is the Fed tightening and easing at the same time. It seems like lending standards, there's a Federal Reserve Bank senior loan official survey. I don't know who these people are, you know, who's making these calls? Is this Powell getting on the phone? Hey, are you willing to lend to consumers? But according to this, posted by, uh, I think it's Bank America and, and the Federal Reserve Bank, lending stand, willingness to lend to consumers is very low. And it's certainly been, it's not as low as it was in the depths of, you know, March, 2020, uh, but it, it's low, it's low. And Jay, I will say as well. I was going to say, let's talk about why that is, right? Banks are like, uh-oh, these safe securities that we have, like this practice of lending money, you know, in the long term and, you know, earning money in the short term is not working for them. And, uh, you know, and so they're drying up. It's like, it's, 
it's not a, a smart business plan for them at this point based on their normal operation. And the market is not happy about this, right? The market is starting to treat, you know, bond risk, treasury risk worse than stock risk. Like the fact that, you know, the, the bonds that have always been fine for the regular lending practices are now coming under scrutiny because of how fast rates rose. And you get the SVBs, you get all these other uh, scenarios that are going on. Uh, Credit Suisse this morning, Deutsche Bank, right? Hey, are the are the are the are the bonds going to be okay? Like all of this is like causing this very upside down market. I feel like we're watching Stranger Things, and we're in the upside down right now. And I know you know what that is because you told me you watched an episode. Did you watch the whole season or just like one episode? No, I, I watched all of season one. I thought it was yeah. good. I, yeah, yeah, yes. You you and a million other people. Like by the way, I think single handedly, you know, like uh, Stranger Things is keeping Netflix alive. Okay, but besides that, that was not a recommendation on Netflix stock, by the way. But besides that, I guess I'm a little fired up about this. This concept of how bonds are now, you know, getting treated as the risky, and the, and we're not talking like high yield bonds that are defaulting. We're talking treasuries and like backed securities here that all of a sudden the market is really concerned about stuff that has always been the safe haven. And so I just, I feel like the confusion is starting to peak out just across everybody in the market right now. I think we saw that too with, with Credit Suisse. And I'll be honest, I haven't read through the terms of the whole bailout, non-bailout, merger, not, I think Credit Suisse said it was a merger and UBS said, yeah, we're taking them over. So, uh, yeah. And they're rivals. Like that was, uh, you know, when Ameritrade tried to buy E-Trade a bunch of times, they were like, we'll sell to anybody except Ameritrade. <laughs> um, back of the day, I won't even go into the, the years. But didn't the bond, I mean, the thing is, I think the equity holders got something, but some of the bond holders didn't. And when you, when you look at the credit default swap rates, so credit default swap, basically, you know, if rates go from 80 basis points to 180 basis points, it means your annual uh, insurance cost on that was, you know, one point eight percent, and it, it's it. Somebody is buying credit default swaps on Deutsche Bank. Maybe it's the bondholders because I guess if you're getting, I don't know what the rates are on Deutsche Bank bonds, but you know, if you got to pay one point eight percent to to insure them over the next year with a credit default swap, I guess. Got to be pretty high, right? Deutsche always lands in the crosshairs of you know. I've actually been curious why have we not heard from them in the last two weeks and then this morning we did. But yes, go ahead. I cut you off. Yeah, I don't know what's on their balance sheet. Or I, I haven't looked at their their stuff, but uh, they have. I mean, I think I read an article in Bloomberg that said they, they'd sort of turned some things around or they, they – but I mean, Jay, don't you think this puts a little pressure on bank earnings? I mean, I, I haven't really – I guess I'm just thinking out loud, but – doesn't it cost money now to to get deposits? I don't know. Uh, and and apparently, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, uh, be as loose with your capital. You have to be more constrained, and you have to be, you know, uh, you know, it's just the, you're going to have to be more cautious on how much you uh, leverage your balance sheet. And uh, one of those things that just means lower earnings. Like when the big banks uh, uh, had to kind of increase the amount of capital they held aside after Dodd-Frank when the legislation was passed, you know, it definitely hurt the earnings of all the big banks, right? All the too big to fail banks definitely had to just say, okay, look, we, we got to leave more capital off to the side just to cover now these requirements after 2008, uh, seven and eight. So yeah, I think this mini crisis that we're going on, even though it's localized, 
uh, could just be a canary in the coal mine and banks are going to tighten themselves up. And this all leads to the willingness to lend decline uh, that, you know, they're just going to have to be a little more careful out of the gate. You know, in the chart that you sent, Derek, the level that we are at of, you know, this survey of willingness to, to uh, uh, you know, to willingness to lend, um, that decline is like it's past some recessions, right? I mean, it's not awful, but it's down like in the minus 20 percent range, I think. Is that what the range is that we're looking at? Where, you know, some recessions, it was a little higher than that. And some recessions, it bottomed out right about here. So, you know, I think that the banks are going to be scared, which means they're going to be more conservative, which means they probably have less earnings. So Goldman Sachs just sent this to me. And, and of course, only to me, I'm sure. No, this is uh, yeah, right to uh, you. Goldman hey, Derek, put this on your podcast. Yeah, that's right. But it was good timing. And so I'll read it it's from their, uh, their uh, briefing email. It says, our economist also expect stress on small and mid-sized banks to result in tighter lending standards, which they estimate will impose a 0.25 to 0.5 percentage point drag on GDP growth, equivalent to the impact of 25 to 50 basis points of rate hikes. Jay, this is interesting because uh, we were just talking off air that, you know, they raised 50 or 25 basis points. A lot of people thought it would have been 50. But Goldman Sachs is saying, hey, wait a second, this lending tightening is the equivalent to maybe 25 to 50 basis points. So essentially, we raised synthetically 50 to 75 basis points. Is that just what just happened, Jay? I mean, that's what Goldman Sachs thinks just happened. But I don't argue with their logic. I don't... um I mean, yeah, like it's going to be money is going to be more expensive. That's the whole point of raising rates in the first place, right? Make money tighter, make money more expensive to borrow. And you could do it because you could charge people more or the banks could just say, you know what? We don't want to take more risk. So, yeah, I think that's I think that does make sense. I I'm surprised it's only that big of a hit to GDP, actually. We'll see. Well, we can take it up with Goldman Sachs and their their economists. As I always said, uh, who's, who's their chief economist? Uh, why can't I remember his name? But I always say, you know, there's a reason why Goldman Sachs hired him and not me to be their chief economist. So uh, I, I kind of pay attention to uh, the stuff that comes out. Jay, at the same time, the Fed's balance sheet, it was going so well. They were letting $95 billion run off a month. And two-thirds of QT done in the last year was reversed in two weeks, Jay. So they're tightening, but they're easing. And so let me let me explain this, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this. Explain why this happened. They're explaining, yeah, go ahead. Go through it. So on March 1st, uh, the Fed's balance sheet was $8.34 trillion. Okay. Uh, on 413 of 22 is $8.97 trillion. Now, as of the 22nd, which when we're recording, this was two days ago, it went from 8.34 to 8.73. And so why did it go up? The reason is that new facility that they set up, uh, my understanding is that a bank like SVP, who has these longer duration bonds that have gone down in value as interest rates go up, the Fed is essentially, I believe, given them a loan and given them the par value, which means, you know, a bond, every bond gets redeemed at maturity at $1,000, long it doesn't default. And a lot of these were treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So even if those bonds are down like 20%, the Fed gave them a loan at par. 
And then the Fed takes those bonds off SVB's balance sheet and puts them on their own. So presto, Jay, that's how, uh, you know, that's how they did it. So let me let me just put the number in perspective again. We're talking about almost 400 billion was added to the Fed balance sheet in just the last two weeks. Is that what we're saying? In the last two weeks, 400 billion was added because they are taking the loans that are causing banks to essentially go under, to fail, say, no, no, we'll take those. And here's, we're going to lend you the money of the value that it is, that it is eventually going to be worth. Right. So essentially they, banks bought a bond. It went against them in price. And uh, even if it was a treasury, right, we know bonds will go down when rates go up. And so that rate, when rates went up, these bonds went down in price and they caused a problem with the bank. And all of a sudden the Fed was like, no, 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 bring those over to me and we'll give you we'll give you money for them. We'll lend you money for them. Gosh. So, I mean, it's a bailout. Is that and I, I guess I shouldn't be mad about it. I don't want any banks to go under. Don't get me wrong. But this seems like, uh, you know. It like, seems I like a bailout. out. Let's just call it. I mean. <laughs> I wish I could like, do every one of my bad trades. Like, oh, hey, Fed, I know I did a trade. But eventually, I know my stock's going to be worth something more. Can't you just lend me the money now? And they did. That's great. You know, it doesn't matter. I, I, I won't even mention the bank. Uh, but I happened to read a letter to shareholders from a bank, and I think it was either in 2000, I think it was 2021, and in specifically in the letter to shareholders, they said, we didn't think buying long-duration bonds that were giving us you know, 0.16% or whatever they re- referenced was worth it from a risk-reward standpoint, because if interest rates go up, the value of those bonds go down. Like, if you have banks that didn't go really long-term on the curve, or didn't go long term, and also didn't add like swaps or hedges. I feel like it. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll be here all day, but I think this is moral hazard. I, I have a little bit of a problem with that. But as you said, Jay, like the last thing I want is a big problem with the banks. So maybe if the Fed takes these bonds, puts them on their book, and holds them to maturity, it's not like it's toxic stuff. Like. No, it's not toxic stuff. It's just somebody mismanaged their their book and didn't understand duration risk. I don't know. Or they understood it, but they didn't think it was possible. You know, a lot of people said, no, the highest the Fed will go is 2%. No, no, the highest they'll go is 3%. The highest they'll go is 4%. Now we have people saying the highest they'll go is 6%. Well, no, we know, but yeah. All right, Jay, um, let's put that one to bed. I also want to comment, I'm, I always enjoy when I hear the short sellers come out and put out research, because I think, I think it's good entertainment. Uh, Hinderberg came out with a, a new thing on Block, which is Square. If you've ever gone to a merchant and put a card in a machine and signed like with your finger, most likely that's a Square terminal or something. But one of the things that they pointed out was that a lot of companies uh, report gap and non-gap adjustments. And one of the things I think that came out was uh, Block's increasing reliance on non-GAAP adjustments. And it says they turned a, what is this, over a billion dollar profit turned into a close to a $600 million loss when you put back share-based compensation. So Jay, that's where companies issue shares to employees, either restricted stock units or stock options or some other uh, miscegenation of that. And Gap 
takes those as a charge, but non-GAAP does not. Um, I don't think we want to spend too much time on this, but it is interesting. I remember reading in Bloomberg that if you look at a chart of net income versus a chart of you know free cash flow, they've started to diverge a little bit where net income is higher. If, if you could see this line and folks, you know, imagine if you're driving, there's two lines. Uh, and those tend to come back into alignment over time, you know, because cash flows and, and earnings eventually sort of coalesce. But I don't know, Jay, anything on this besides being good theater? I won't add too much. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not an accountant, right? So I understand a little bit of the difference here and the adjustments that they're making. But it is interesting to watch, you know, the you know, the fundamental bear case of a short seller. I mean, by the way, one of the best names of a, short selling firm, right? Hindenburg. Um, I like Muddy Waters is out there too, right? They pick some very interesting names to show they're mostly short sellers in the market. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, this kind of stuff has uh, someone who used to get compensated with corporate stock, at least a little bit uh, at when we worked at Ameritrade. It's just one of those things that, yeah, I get it. But like when you really load it up, there should there there should be a problem there. Right. When you re, when you to the point that you're affecting earnings, it should definitely be a problem. So, yeah, we'll see how it all turns out. It's fun to watch these things a little bit. It's not a stock we own. I'm probably not going to own it uh, anytime in the near future. Yeah. I mean, all right. So Mike and I, Mike Puck and I did a, an episode last week. Where we actually went into a, a little deep dive in like the idea of dividends and buybacks as returns of capital to shareholders and, and the idea of everybody knows what a dividend yield is, but what about a buyback yield? So we went through that. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I did mention, you know, one of the, the, the knocks on share buybacks is the idea that companies who are doing a lot of uh, employee stock compensation are also buying back shares because they have to issue shares at the same time. So there, there's been a lot of research on that. You can Google it. Different firms go, go for that. But yeah, I, I enjoy the short sellers, but I got to tell you, after the GameStop thing, and good luck being a short seller, because at any point, the market can go irrational on you. So sure, hopefully short sellers are, are hedging. I mean, yeah. Jay, that could be your next book. Uh, instead of buying hedge, sell and hedge, right? Pass that out to, sure. uh, to a few folks on Wall Street. All right, Jay, <laughs> let me get your, get your thoughts on this. You and I have always said the market is smarter than everybody, meaning the market discounts everything. And it seems to lead. We've said, whether it's with the economy, it's say the market tends to bottom before earnings, before the economy. I just found this interesting. I pulled up, uh, somebody had posted this. Who is this from? Uh, I, I lost it in my notes, but it's uh, REITs. So Real Estate Investment Trust. And this was through the end of February, because we know that commercial and specifically office REITs have been getting pummeled. Um, I, is pummel the right word? Yeah. I mean, they've been down a lot. I think that's a fair. Yeah. Hammered, pummeled. Yeah. yeah. What, what I thought was interesting about this is, and it doesn't necessarily matter the name, but I pulled up a list and you can see the returns on REITs. I mean, some of these were down 20%, others around 20%. But when you look at, do they trade at a premium or a discount to their net asset value, uh, the, a lot of these are trading at really, really big discounts, Jay. And that tells me that the market has already discounted the price ahead of 
what the holdings themselves have been marked down. Did I, is that a good way of saying it? Or Jay, clean it up a little bit for me. Let me get your thoughts on this. Yeah, so you're right. And and just as a note, we don't invest in a ton of REITs at Zega, right? It's not part of our normal builds. We'll do one-offs. So I um, we're not pitching or bashing REITs here on purpose at all. Just it's an interesting dynamic. So right. So while REITs are down in price, um, the actual uh, market is saying, yeah, we know that your values, the way you value your holdings is down, but we actually are going to trade you at a significant dif- uh, discount below that, right? So let's say, for an example, uh, last year, there was only one building in a company, and, in a REIT, and they valued it at a, at a, uh, a million bucks. This year, they, they mark it and they say, well, okay, let's mark this thing at 800000 the market may be out there saying, well, that's great, but if I'm going to you know, trade your REIT and I'm going to buy it, we're only going to evaluate you at you know, 400, 500, 600,000, significantly discounted at what the REIT is marking on their books. And this is across the board, Derek. Like this list that, uh, that, that you, know, you put in front of me that we're looking at, it's, it's, it's like 40 REITs. And I only see one of them, there's a few that maybe don't trade. But I only see, you know, one or two of them that actually are not at a premium, that are at a, that, sorry, not at a discount, that are at a premium. So it's it's um, it could be, you know, another shoe to fall because the market, you know, is telling you what it's worth, regardless of what you're saying your books are worth. Right. Does that sound familiar to anything, Derek? Like other Yes. Huh. Yeah. Oh. SVP? I don't know. All right. Anyway, <laughs> I will say, Jay, I'll link to a an episode of Bloomberg has a podcast called Odd Lots, and they had a guest, Rich Hill, the head of real estate strategy and research. So certainly more qualified than, than you or I to talk about this space at Cohen and Steer. So I'll link to that in the show notes. I listened to it. It's really interesting on, on the commercial side. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, to me, it's, it's a good example, Jay, of how the markets discount what it believes uh, is the implied information and things. But all right, Jay, let's talk about earnings because you and I always say in the end, you know, we've had a bunch of nonsense with the banks. Um, You know, it's like enough of these already. Hopefully every, we don't see this anymore. Banks go down. And by the way, this is why we, we buy and hedge. I mean, our philosophy is we buy the mark, we hedge it. We don't necessarily know when you know the, the the perfect timing of buying versus selling is, but the idea is you stay invested in markets for the long term, and more often than not, markets do pretty well. But Jay, we always bring it back to earnings. So we had a down, you know, Q4. And I think there's two companies left to report. The S and P is expected to to have a negative 3.2 percent year over year growth rate in earnings. And if you take out the the energy sector, it would be negative 7.4% down. But Jay, I mean, this is going to like, can we start just getting some earnings again? Like, let's let's get some real information instead of speculating. And yeah, let's get back to it, right? Let's get, it's it's so hard, right? With, with you're right. We always say interest rates and earnings are the things that drive market prices. Uh, the, 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 this has been one of the more difficult years, really the last nine months to, interpret the interest rate environment but earnings are earnings right and so uh it's you're right let's let's take a look at it the decline has been you know interesting and i would say not properly telegraphed by the by the by by the analysts right i mean we're at a point 
Where did we end up coming in? You said minus three, 3.2. Uh, X energy minus seven. You know, uh, Derek, I think you're smart enough to remember that that was not the case even, you know, nine months or a year ago. Nobody was really projecting that Q4 earnings in 2022 would be negative. Everybody thought this would be over by now, right? So uh, you want to kind of refresh our memory of what earnings were projected to look like? And this is from uh, IBE's data from Refinitiv. So Refinitiv, uh, I, I check out their their dashboard, their earnings dashboard weekly. And so remember what Jay just said, negative 3.2% was the year-over-year growth in earnings uh, for Q4 of 22. So the one we were just getting done the reporting. January 1st of, was this, uh, yeah, yeah. So this is January 1st of last year. The expectation was a growth rate of positive 14.2%. By April, analysts had brought it down to positive 10.4, 10.6, ticked up a little bit in July. October, they said, well, okay, now it's only going to be 5.8. January of this year, they said, well, they're going to be negative, negative 1.6, and they wound up being negative 3.2. There's two companies left to report. So, Jay, to your point, like earnings estimates have come down. And so what does that say maybe about the future estimates? Um, you know, I, I know you have the numbers in front of you. What does it look like kind of going forward? Like, is this going to continue? Well, look, I mean, I think the the general projections are growth. I, I, before we get onto what it looks like going forward, you know, when I look at the sector breakdown of what it was last year versus what ended up, you know, there's some really big misses over here, like um, consumer discretionary, right? At the beginning of January 2022, was projected to grow 57%. Oh, wow. I totally missed that. Good catch. It ended up declining by almost 16%. Right. So this is like a 70 percent swing, like how wrong that was. Uh, Another one that was a big miss is uh, communication services projected to grow at 18 percent, ended up declining by 28. Uh, I thought tech would have been a much worse story considering how badly, you know, tech got beat up last year. Uh, And it wasn't really all that bad. Supposed to grow at 12 and it ended up shrinking at eight. So a 20 percent swing. But, you know, some of these, Derek, are way, way off. I was also surprised to see that real estate was not as bad uh, considering all of the interest rate uh, change, right? We always say that there's not too much that Fed can really impact when it raises rates in this current environment, especially as we were going through, uh, uh, you know, the supply-driven inflation. But when you look at real estate, it's projected to grow at 11, only down three. So it's interesting when you look at these things, I guess Powell would be happy to know that he's effectively had, uh, you know, helped the consumer dry up in their spending and uh, right when it came to the discretionary spend. But I think, you know, real estate is where they're, where I always think they can make the biggest impact and it looks like it hasn't really hit there yet. You should share, what about energy and materials? Might as well because th- th- those went the other way. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, do all of them. yeah, actually, yeah, energy was projected to shrink in 2022, January of 2022, right? So this is before, you know, everything that happened in Ukraine, uh, right? Supposed to shrink 13, ended up growing by 60%. But the market, the but earnings got that right. Like the analysts got that right pretty quickly because by the time July came around, they said, hey, energy is going to grow by 50. It ended up growing by, you know, just under 60 so that was pretty good. Materials, 
wow, like, you know, this is the impact of, of the dollar, right? This is another one that I think the Fed could impact. Um, it was projected to actually in the middle of the year last year, right? In July, projected to grow at 10%, ended up shrinking at 20. So, you know, materials, obviously, a commodity, a lot of commodities impact those, the earnings of those companies and commodity prices have an impact uh, on, on, you know, on the dollar, right? Because if the dollar goes up, it takes, takes less dollars to buy things like, you know, silver and copper. So uh, things, it's just an interesting divergence on how off the analysts were on what ended up happening. And even as, you know, recently as January of 2023, which is the year's over and they're trying to project what's going to happen just in the next two months, still got it wrong. So we're going to come in at a minus 3% in earnings for 2022. You know, uh, did the market, you know, kind of jump the gun? Like we, you started out saying markets are six months ahead. The market knew earnings were going to be down when the decline really started, right? May, June of last year, that kind of then fall through to October. Seems like the market was 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 on about that. Although I think the degree of the decline isn't commensurate with that minus three. It doesn't matter. Directionally, it was just ahead of what the projections look like. We think too, and and I I want to talk about the the sector reclassifications too. I want to spend some time on that, but I'll just share. You know, earnings are projected, and of course, as Jay just went through, these can change. Negative three point four percent for Q two, minus four point six percent for Q one. So I kind of did those out of order, but minus four, six, minus three, four. Then they have Q3 is a plus 3.3 and Q4 is a plus 10.9. Of course, you know when you know, and we'll see how these change. They could increase, they could decrease, but. Uh, so this is going forward, right? This is, these are the projections for 2020. The projections. About. Yep, yeah, the projections. Yeah. So. so Q1, and we'll start to get Q1 numbers in a couple weeks, <laughs> starting with oh, the financials. Already. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, financial. Interestingly enough, financials are projected to still grow by 5.9%. If I was, uh, you know, somebody that was in the business of shorting, that feels a little high to me considering everything that's going on. But it, there might not have been enough uh, time in Q1 to really impact that. It might be more of a Q2 impact on financials. Yeah. And here's the thing too. You could be, this is the hard thing about picking individual stocks, not not only sectors, but stocks. Like you could be right on the stock, but wrong on the timing. You could be wrong on both. And it's why it's so much easier to, to just do indexes and do what we do, which is, you know, buy and buy the whole market, buy large cap US and, and just be hedged. But Jay, I do want to spend a little time on the sector reclassifications. Bespoke uh, put out something. I saw it on Twitter this was St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. And wow, this is, I, I thought this was really interesting. And I think it was underreported. So GICS reclassification into financials. So financials after the reclassification went from, am I reading this right? 10.3% weighting in the S&P to 13.1. J companies like Visa, MasterCard. PayPal, Pfizer, Fidelity National, Global Payments, Fleet Corps, Jack and Henry, all going from technology to financials. I, I thought this was a big deal. And I don't know how I feel about Visa and MasterCard going to financials. Like, why not consumer staples or something? I don't know, Jay, any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, so when I, I get your, uh, I get why the red flag went up for you on this. Um, when I 
when I think about it, right, the Visa and MasterCard, how do they generate their revenue, right? It's a financial process, right? Lending out and uh, charging, you know, interest at a much higher rate than what they pay uh, for it, plus earning fees from transactions. So I think, you know, they definitely benefited from, you know, technology and uh, and becoming more efficient, right? No one, no one fills out those paper things. Remember that thing that you'd rack right and left and it would make that noise with the card in it and you'd have the Oh, yeah. Copy, the, right? so, you get the carbon <laughs> copy. Oh, yeah, the card. Yeah. So, like, nobody does that. So technology absolutely helped those companies grow and, uh, uh, you know, become what they are today. But I'm not so surprised because they make their money based off of interest rates, right? Net interest income and fees for transactions. That feels like a financial business model to me. I don't know. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, Target, Dollar General, and Dollar Tree went from consumer discretionary to consumer staples. That seems right. Uh, You know, they have staple things and uh, and then the other one was technology to industrial. So ADP went from technology to industrial. I don't get that one, but um, okay. And sometimes I guess some of these just get a little bit out of whack and they want to diversify the the sectors a little bit. What's interesting about the financials though is, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is 12 point, at least as of the 23rd, 12.57% of the XLF, which is the uh, State Street's financial or finance ETF. In Berkshire Hathaway, though, uh, I don't know if there's still almost half, but let's, you know, 40%, I think at least was Apple. And, and then you have Visa and MasterCard. So really, you know, you have a synthetic 6%, 5% of Apple plus 17.5% between, uh, uh, you know, maybe 15% between Visa and MasterCard. And so you have Visa, MasterCard, and Apple now make up like 20% of the XLF. But uh, yeah, I don't know. And I guess these weightings will go up because if, uh, some of these smaller banks come under pressure and their prices have gone down. You got to think their weighting is going to go down as well. But I don't know. Nothing else there, Jay, for me. But yeah. No, well, look, look I mean, uh, Bank of America makes up, you know, four, four and a half percent of XLF. That seemed. Like when I think what's in XLF, right, I'm like JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, you know, Goldman Sachs, maybe, and, you know, investment management companies or ETF companies like, you know, BlackRock. Like, and, and like, but no, like you're right. The bigger ones here besides JP Morgan being in the top four, it's Burke number one at 12%, which is half Apple. By the way, Berkshire owns a lot of other things besides, you know, insurance companies, which is why I think they land there. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's just you're right. It's it's it just goes to show. Don't assume, you know, what's in an ETF. Take a look at the holdings and decide that that's actually what you're trying to invest in uh, uh, when, when you're using them. By the way, they're great vehicles because they definitely help you know get you away from single stock risk. But it also, you know, is good to know what's in them. By the way, I don't know. This is uh, according to a 13F. I don't know when this is from. I'll try and see. But. It looks like they owned about 11% of Bank America as well in Berkshire Hathaway and almost 10% of Chevron, 8.5% of Coca-Cola. They do own American Express. I'll stop there. But yeah, I mean, they own some different stuff. So, you know, Heinz, I guess, you know, 
when you're paying with your credit card, you you put some ketchup on your fries. <laughs> That's financials, right? Sure. Interesting though, is Amex in XLF now? Because you mentioned Visa MasterCard. Was it already in there? Uh, it's not weighted high enough on my initial screen. I'd have to look deeper in the. No, we don't even see it. Okay. I mean, it should be. If yeah, no, it, I'm sure it is. All right, Jay. One of the things uh, you had sent to me this morning was interesting chart. One of the worst years in history. Uh, 2022 bonds and stocks had a rough year. Jay, you want to talk about this? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's, this is not anything new, but it was just, uh, you know, maybe another look at what, uh, when you look at stocks and bonds and portfolios that mix them together, uh, um, which is related to some of the work you and I've been doing lately, Derek, about building aggressive, conservative and moderate type portfolios that use different allocations of bonds. Oh, that's not something you would have heard from you and I over, you know, two years ago, a year ago, three years ago, we just didn't think bonds are worth it. But when you look at, uh, uh, you know, what happened in 2022, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those scenarios that when you have stocks and bonds down, like that ends up being one of the worst years in history for investors. And so, look, all of us, um, no one's feeling great about their portfolios these days, I don't think. Um, it's one of those things that, reminds us that, you know, things don't always go up. You have to have some sideways markets and we may be sideways for a little while. Um, but we just came out of a pretty, pretty rough situation uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, the, in all the financial markets. We've been pretty sideways since I think March of last year, right? If you take a look at a one-year chart, you know, we're not so far off from, you know, the prices of where we were just, uh, you know, like a year ago. And there's a, and I, I shouldn't even say a year ago. I'll say May of last year. We're kind of sideways, right? So since May till now, the market's almost in the exact same spot that it was. And we've had some peaks. We've had some valleys, certainly felt the valleys uh, with the fear that accompanies that. But, you know, like just it's interesting to keep it in perspective that, uh, you know, you've been through a rough time. We all know it. Um, this is why we always talk about having some protection in your portfolio so that you can weather those years. Um, the years before 2022, the five, six years before that, it was pretty great. Um, it might be a few more years in a new regime with higher rates where we're sideways for a little while. That's okay. Uh, but 2022, if it felt bad, don't worry, it was. You're spot on with that feeling. That's my comment. It's, it's so rare to have bonds perform this badly. And it's also very rare for them both to to be down like that. I mean, I, th I think you had mentioned 1969 was the really the last time that that both of these were down as much. So uh, I I think it's just a good lesson where we know that people's most recent experiences drive their current thoughts. We we see it when people fill out risk questionnaires. We see it when uh, we talk to to advisors and their clients. And it's just one of those things where if you're fighting the the most recent war, sometimes you lose the the future battles. And we saw that after 2008, where people went to cash, they they stayed in money market funds for several years, even as markets came back. So, yeah, pretty bad year. And I think everyone their most recent experience is a bad one. So, with that, uh, Jay, I think we'll get to uh, you know some things some recommendations also mentioned we didn't give any recommendations today as far as what to buy or sell that's why again we just uh you know our, our core message is is buy but be hedged so 
uh, we just sort of have fun with uh, with a lot of the stuff. But Jay, any any sort of things that you think are worth pointing out? In uh, I think you went to the movies recently, right? Listen, I, I last time I was on, I, you cheated on me with Mike last week, and that's okay. If he was going to host, it's fine. Probably even uh, you know stole what I was going to talk about. That's also fine. But I talked about <laughs> that I wanted to go. I was giving a preemptive recommendation to John Wick, and I have since seen it. Uh, and I, you know, reiterate my strong recommendation. If you're a John Wick fan, it was good. It was very good. If you like a movie where a lot of people, uh, you know, get killed and there's, it's a little on the gory side, but not gory, gory, just it's, it's a fun movie to watch. Uh, I'm chuckling because, uh, you know, I've been watching them. 2014, the first one came out and this is number four, chapter number four. And I think it was the best one. So I reiterate my strong recommendation on John Wick, but I do have a show that I'm enjoying uh, on Hulu called The Alaskan um, with uh, Hillary Swank. And it is, uh, she's a news reporter and it's just, I just think it's a pretty good show. Uh, it's got some other actors in it that you might recognize, but uh, that's my other recommendation. The Alaskan. Okay. You know, Hulu, for whatever reason, I go there when I go to there to watch something and I don't necessarily pick up what's over there. So I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. I, uh, by the way, I was actually going to say, I, I, I'm going to rewatch Wall Street because it's now uh, 35 years old. And then I, I looked and realized it came out in 87. So it's actually 36 years this year. But it's still, why not? Go ahead and, and rewatch Wall Street. One of the greats. I Bernie think we Gecko should do, yeah. You know what we should do? Maybe we'll, we'll get Mike on and you at the same time. We should uh, do what, you know, Bill Simmons and The Ringer, they have a, a, a podcast called The Rewatchables where they go rewatch an old movie and then they talk about it. Like Wall Street would be a great one to do. Um, Absolutely. And I've done, I've done podcasts on The Big Short and Margin Call as well, sort of explaining in, in layman's terms what, what goes on there. But Jay, I'll just mention too, I had read uh, Murray Rothbard's book on the panic of 1819. It was actually from his dissertation at Columbia in the 1950s. It's a very old book, came out in the 60s. And recently I stumbled upon somebody, uh, Browning is a an author who just put out a newer version of that. And I'm listening to the audio book. So that's, that's sort of my, my literary recommendation for the week. And the reason why I like reading these old books, because uh, they had a, a crash and there were some government decisions like putting, you know, restricting trade. You had a rush of investment into manufacturing and, and specifically in, in cotton manufacturing. And you had all these different banks. So imagine like the Bank of Kansas. I don't know if we owned Kansas back then, but, you know, the Bank of, of New York had their own paper notes and sometimes other banks would take those and sometimes they would require a specie, which is, uh, I don't know how that term comes up, but it's for coins. So anyway, that's, uh, it's, I always like reading past stuff because it's amazing how much the names change, the, the stuff changes, but it all sort of the same. So Jay, that's my recommendation. Yeah. I always love reading those and you're like, and you've said this, I don't know how many times, if you look at the headlines from 30 years ago, what's happened politically, kind of usually feels like what's going on today, right? So I think it's great to be reminded that, uh, you know, what we're going through might be different, but there's always something close to it to, to reference. And it always seems to 
kind of go the same way. I always, you know, I always think about this and, and you and I have seen, a, you know, a bunch of market crashes and let's say, let's start with, uh, oh boy, let's, I mean, if we start with what happened, even just with the dot-com bomb, right? And then you think about what happened with, uh, you know, the banking sell-off, uh, you know, financial crisis, a lot of it always comes down to leverage and mismanaging your positions. And the thing is, if everybody just remembers, the only thing you can control when you invest is the amount of risk you take or the type of risk you take. Start there. Always assess your risk first. Sorry, I got back to investing, but you brought up an investing book. So um, I won't get too heavy on it. But just remember, that's what you can control. And the mismanagement and of risk is the thing that usually brings people down and institutions. That's a great place to end. And I will remind people, Buy and Hedge, your book, actually has that quote in it. I remember one of the chapters. So good good Easter gifts, I think. You know, Buy and Hedge and also Broken Pie Chart. Pick them both up. Uh, why not? Jay, thanks again for coming on. <laughs> you got it, Derek. Thank you. All right. We'll see everyone. Bye.